Well, thank you for being here today. If this is your first time uh, with us, my name is Mike, and I'm the lead pastor here at, uh, at MCC. And we have a gift for you. It is, uh, it's going to be up at this table right over here to my left, your right, uh, along with some folks who are uh, anxious to talk to you if you're interested. This has nothing to do with the gift, by the way, uh, but some ministry opportunity here as well. You get the gift anyway. And, uh, uh, but I want to let you know that. Really glad that you're here. And I would love to meet you. I'm going to be right up front here afterwards. So if you want to, I'd love to meet you if you'd like to introduce yourself. And I wanted to say hey to those who are watching uh, online today, because uh, we know that many people joined us there before they joined us here. So thank you for being there. And we do hope to see you here. And I wanted to give a shout out. There are some ladies in Pennsylvania who have been using our message series uh, as the basis for their Bible study. Right now, I was talking to uh, one of them this past week. They're not doing it right now. They've kind of disbanded and they're, they're moving in different directions. But Sandy said she's still listening. So Sandy, I wanted to, surprise, I wanted to say hey to you uh, today and thank you for joining us in Colossians. So if you have your Bible with you, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. If you have your smartphone, uh, the Version app, you can find our notes there for this morning uh, as well. Uh, we are uh, in uh, the third chapter of Colossians. We've been looking at this letter, and Paul is about to make this pivotal transition in what he is talking about. Uh, because at the beginning, this is kind of typical of Paul, at the beginning of his letters, he talks about doctrinal lessons, and then he makes a transition in the second half about how we put those lessons into practice. So first we understand why we should live a certain way, and then he begins to talk about how we actually live uh, that certain way. And the order of that is important, by the way. I want to make sure that you get that. Christianity should always begin. Our faith, our walk with Jesus should always begin with what we believe. It should impact how we behave, but our faith is more than just an exercise in behavior modification. So on your notes, because I wanted to make sure you got that, I'll make sure you see this. Uh, Paul knows when it comes to faith, it's belief first and then behavior. So belief first, and then our behavior follows what we know to be true. So here's the transition he makes in chapter three, beginning in verse one. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ, which refers back. If you've been with us, you know, he's referring back. You've heard us talk about chapter two, verse 12. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul's referring back to their baptism when he talks about this. It's this picture of what happens when you're baptized, right? You are buried with Jesus in the water, and then you're raised to live this new life. And Paul is saying, since this is true, you need to set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. The old, you, the old you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So setting our minds on things above means that we are to begin to take this God perspective on life, uh, the, to have the, the perspective that God has on people and attitudes and behaviors and how we treat people. And interestingly, in this verse, the Greeks would commonly speak of someone who had died as being hidden in the earth. But in our baptism, for us, in baptism, we're not hidden in the earth. We're actually, because we've died with Jesus, we're actually hidden. Can you see how Paul's saying that? We are hidden in 
Christ. We're hidden with Christ in God. So in verse four, he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So because this is true, verse five begins then to tell us how to practically live this out. So all of Paul's been pointing back because we believe this, because this is true of us, because we know this to be right, and we know this to be true. He begins to tell us what it looks like When someone who has committed their lives to Jesus, has died with him, is is hidden with him, uh, how they live that out. Now, listen, back in the 80s and 90s, when I was a student pastor in Columbus, we would take our students to Round Lake Camp, our Christian church camp, which, by the way, I don't know if you know this, uh, Jason, who is our student pastor here, is with middle schoolers at a retreat this weekend at our church camp, Butler Springs Camp. Uh, And Butler Springs, like Round Lake, just a great place for students to get away from their normal schedule and from the noise of their lives, their everyday lives, to be able to pull back And when you're quiet, you just, you hear God uh, differently, better uh, when you're quiet. Uh, At the camp that I worked at, with our week, the problem was that we had 120 junior high campers, middle schoolers coming in who really didn't know each other. I mean, they just, they knew some people because they came with them, but they didn't know by and large everybody. And so we had to, one of the things we recognized early on was we needed to find a creative way to help break down the barriers between the students so that they could begin to develop relationships and we as staff could could speak with them and they would be able to hear uh, the truth of God. Uh, And so we had to figure that out. So we we designed, we, or probably stole this idea for a game that we, and we did it on a Monday. So we did it at the very beginning of the week because we wanted to start early on this. And it was called Anything Goes. And so what we did was we sent letters out to the campers ahead of time before they ever came to camp. We sent a letter to them and asked them to bring with them, told them it would probably be very smart. They're definitely going to want to bring with them a pair of clothes, a set of clothing that they didn't mind getting trashed. And that they would literally, I mean, they would throw it away when we were done. They were going to, there's a set of clothes, just know you come when you come, have some clothes that you can throw away when you get here. And so this game that we played, we did it in a field. The first year we didn't do it on a tarp and we learned our lesson. So the second year we played it on a tarp and it had, I think, 10 phases. The first phase was eggs and everybody was given a couple. And the idea was go out and make friends. Uh, and so, you know, you're trying to smear your eggs on other people. Phase two was uh, like flour. Phase three was, you know, syrup and four was oatmeal. And every time they're just given an amount and you go out and you're just, I mean, there's just stuff all in the air and everywhere and on and on. And you kind of get the picture, right, of what everybody was like at the end of this thing. What's interesting is it really did break down walls. I mean, they started, the friendships began to develop very early in the week, and it was great. And we're running around and getting everybody as messy as we could, and and they began to open up. But when we finished with this event, we, I mean, we were a mess. We were just ketchup and mustard and all kinds of stuff just all over us. And so we would go down to the lake, and we would hose uh, ourselves off so you could kind of get the crud and all the nasty Uh, icky and some of the gooey off of you. Paul says, when you follow Jesus, this is the first step that we take. When you have begun to understand who Jesus is and that you want him not only as Savior, but you want him as Lord, the one who's going to be calling the shots in your life, it will begin by making some major changes in your behavior. And he begins the list very strategically. Verse two, again, he says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Again, because sin begins in the mind, holiness also begins there. And we can't, we just don't learn to 
uh, control our behavior. We have to make this radical shift in our thinking, which is why when Paul writes to the church in Rome in chapter 12, he tells them this, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. That's when you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And it begins, first of all, by removing uh, inappropriate thoughts from our lives. Inappropriate thoughts. Make sure you write that down. Someone said this, it should be on your notes. Thought is action in rehearsal. Think about that. Inappropriate thoughts just easily sneak into our minds if we aren't careful. And what you fill your mind with is going to end up showing itself by what comes out of your heart and what comes out in your actions, which is why, by the way, Jesus uh, told us what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For uh, from, it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly, all of these evils, all of those things come from inside and defile a person. Listen, Satan loves to chip away a little at a time, and it starts with how you think. And so we have to remove inappropriate thoughts. And we set our mind on things above. Uh, so there are actions for us to follow uh, that we need to, need to die as well. And I want, to note, want you to notice how strongly he words this. Because Paul says in verse 5, Put to death. Kill these things that are inside of you. Murder them. I wanted to put on your notes, get the hell out. But I was afraid, you know, there's a connotation to that. And, uh, and, I, I, just, and, I, and I really didn't want to get in trouble. So, uh, but this is the hell in you that you are to murder. Look at what Paul goes to immediately. He says, immoral actions, we need to kill, we need to murder immoral actions in our lives. He begins a spiritual hit list of what needs to die with sexual immorality and impurity and lust. By the way, the Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea, where we get our English word pornography, right? Can we agree that this, listen, that whole area uh, of sexual sin is a huge challenge, especially for men in our sex-saturated society. Interestingly, according to the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, 18,426 deer vehicle uh, crashes were reported across the uh, state of Ohio in 2017. 18,000 426. The ODNR Division of Wildlife says that the peak season for road kills is fall. Do you know why? October through December. I'm going to tell you why, all right? October through December, but you may have guessed right. We'll see. It's peak deer mating season in the Buckeye State, if you're wondering what buck, Buckeyes are up to. They are concentrating almost exclusively on reproductive activities. They are a whole lot less cautious than they would normally be. And I just want to say the white-tailed deer are not the only ones that are often destroyed by a preoccupation with sex. Raleigh Washington said, this is on your notes, takes a lifetime to build a legacy and one lousy night to destroy it. What does that mean in practicality? It means if you're single, 
You guard your virginity stubbornly. You treat your virginity as if it is a gift to be given to one person after you're married on your wedding night. If you're married, you tenaciously maintain your marriage vow. If you've already blown it, you change your behavior immediately, whether that involves breaking off a relationship, talking to a professional counselor, getting an accountability partner, or even changing the place you work or the church you attend because you have to get away from that person you've been in this relationship with. And listen, if you're flirting with disaster, and you're convinced that you've got everything under control. Putting to death, murdering your sinful nature means you step back from the cliff before it's too late. On your notes, pastor and author Bill Perkins said this, if you think you cannot fall into sexual sin, then you're godlier than King David, stronger than Samson, and wiser than Solomon, who all fell to sexual sin. Here's the next thing Paul says, idolatrous desires idolatrous desires, which, you know, Paul talks about this in verses five uh, and six, when he says, put to death uh, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. And I don't know about you, but I hear stuff like that. My first thought, I jumped to the second commandment in Exodus chapter 20 that says, don't make for yourself an idol. And so we feel pretty good about that because probably none of us have taken a log and whittled it down into something that we bow down to. It's not sitting on a shelf in our home and we don't pray to it or anything like that. But Paul says, when we talk about idolatry, he's talking about anything that we long for to the extreme. As a matter of fact, the word that he uses here for greed means to have an insatiable desire to always have more. Anything, anything that you have an insatiable desire to always have more of is an idol to you. It was the theologian Zwingli who uh, asked the question, do I possess things or do things possess me? And by the way, this is a process that, that can begin so slowly and it seems so innocently that by the time you recognize it, you're not sure you want to walk away from it. Does that make sense? You get so far into this thing and you want whatever it is that you want. And you're not even real sure you're, you're willing to give that up even for God. Here's the next thing Paul talks about is improper anger. We have to murder the improper anger that is inside of us. That's verse eight, by the way, where he uses words like anger, rage, and malice. We need to get rid of these things. Now, to be clear, and I want to make sure you hear this, there is an appropriate anger about the evil in this world. There is a godlike righteousness, righteous anger justly uh, justice about uh, issues like human trafficking, domestic violence, the horrible effects of drug addiction in our city on people and children, some who have not even been born, who are born addicted. And, and we, there's this righteous anger about this, which is why Paul would write, when he wrote to the church in Ephesus, he actually said, in your anger, do not sin, because it's possible to be angry and not sin. But the, but the Greek word he uses for anger when he writes to the church in Colossae it is, uh, suggests a smoldering ember. It's this deep-seated, seething resentment. It just sort of simmers underneath the surface. The word for rage uh, pictures a flaming fire that blazes quickly and, and uncontrollably. It's this consuming fire that just kind of goes like that. And the word for malice suggests a viciousness of mind, 
wishing evil upon others. And these types of bitter, hostile emotions, quite frankly, smell a lot like hell. And they need to be eradicated from anyone who is a Jesus follower from our life. And part of it is because of what that anger like that can lead to what Paul talks about next, which is impure speech. And I don't know if you notice that in the verses when Paul's talking about this, he goes on and he talks about, along with slander and filthy language, that the tongue can get us into all kinds of trouble. Look at verses 9 and 10, right? Because uh, we're, we're, we shouldn't lie to each other because we've taken off our old self uh, with its practices and we put on this new self. So when we get, listen, when we get angry, when we are out of control in our anger, we can do and say things. Paul is reminding us that words have incredible power. We already know that. But Proverbs 18 reminds us, in case we've forgotten, that the tongue has the power of life and death. And we've seen it at work. Listen, Rears Digest several years ago had a story of a businessman in Southfield, Michigan. It was about Christmas time, and his office had had a party, and his secretary had had a little bit too much to drink. So rather than allowing her to drive home in her inebriated state, he volunteered to give her a ride home, just kind of an innocent gesture to help her out. So he took her home, and then he headed for his house uh, immediately to pick up his wife because they were celebrating their anniversary uh, by going out to dinner. So when he went to pick his wife up, he thought to himself, you know, I'm not even going to mention that I just took my secretary home because I don't want her to think something that isn't true. And so I'm not even going to bring it up. So he picks his wife up and they start driving to the restaurant. And about halfway there, he glances down and underneath the passenger seat is a half exposed high heel shoe. And he begins to sweat and he begins to think, oh man, what am I going to do? So he does this thing and he gets his wife to look out her window and he's pointing at something. And while she's looking, he grabs the shoe, rolls his down and throws it out the window. And they continue on uh, to the restaurant. When they pull into the driveway of the restaurant, he noticed his wife beginning to squirm a little bit. And she looked over and she said, honey, have you seen my other shoe? (laughs) I just want to (laughs) say, the truth has a way of coming out, right? You know what I'm talking about? Which is why, by the way, Jesus said to, for those of us who are followers of his, say only yes if you mean yes, and no if you mean no, which means, by the way, when a Jesus follower opens their mouth, the only thing, the whole principle here is, if a Jesus follower opens their mouth, the only thing coming out of that mouth ought to be the truth, and people ought to know that. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, your words show what's in your heart. That's why we need to make sure that, the, that, that what's inside of us is what needs to be there. One more muddy item to remove, uh, and, and it's not easy to rid yourself of this. Intolerant behavior. Write that one down. My guess is we have all touched this one in our lifetime. I'm having you write it down because you may not recognize what it is yet. In verse 11, Paul goes after this. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And even looking at the verse, you may not recognize what I'm talking about. But what I'm talking about is, Paul didn't just send one letter to the city of Colossae. He sent two. Uh, One is a letter to the church in Colossae, the book we call Colossians. The other was a letter to a guy named Philemon, also in your Bible. The letter to Philemon is one of the shortest books in the New Testament, and it was a whole different letter than the letter he wrote to the church there. It seems that Philemon and his family were rather wealthy, and they had this large home where the church in Colossae, they actually met 
in their home. That's how big their home was. Uh, And apparently Philemon had a slave named Onesimus who had stolen from him, and then he ran away uh, to Rome where he bumps into Paul because that's where Paul is in prison. So he becomes acquainted with Paul. Paul leads him to Jesus. And then he teaches Onesimus about Jesus. And then he challenges this slave to go back to Colossae and make things right with Philemon. Now, remember, this goes back to where we started. You First, you learn how you're supposed to think, and then you learn how you live that out, right? So it's the what we believe and then what we do with it kind of thing. So Onesimus was a believer, and it was time for him to make things right. So he writes this letter, this other letter that's going to the same city to Philemon, asking Philemon to both forgive Onesimus and to welcome him back, no longer as a slave, but now as a brother in Christ. And in the next chapter, Colossians 4 tells us that Onesimus is actually one of the guys bringing these two letters from Paul. He's one of the guys who's carrying these two letters. And so we assume, and if you can picture this, we assume that Philemon read this personal letter. The rest of the church didn't get to see it. He read the personal letter from Paul. We assume he did what Paul said. He chose to forgive Onesimus. So both, this is what you have to picture. Philemon and Onesimus are in this assembly together. Keep in mind, everybody knows this slave stole from him. Everybody knows that he ran away to Rome. Everybody knows that he's back. And now they're sitting together when the book of Colossians is read. And it says, here in the church, in Jesus, there is no slave or free. And they're sitting right there. These two men sitting together would have been a living proof to everyone there that we are all one in Christ. And I'm telling you, prejudice has no place in the church. One of the great stains on the reputation of the church throughout history has been our treatment of other people, people of other races and other religions. Listen, we don't have to agree with people in order to treat them with dignity and respect and recognize their value in the eyes of God, that we never lock eyes with anyone that Jesus didn't die for, regardless of what they believe, regardless of how they behave. Reality check on this. Many, if not most, maybe all of us have struggled to get rid of this one. And some of these others I've mentioned today have made you grimace a little bit. Many years ago, the Associated Press told a story about a woman from Terre Haute. She called the police because she had a a skunk in her cellar. And she said, what should we do? Well, the sergeant who answered the phone said, well, we really kind of don't, we don't handle these kind of things. But I do have an idea. Uh, Take some bread and break it up. Put a trail of breadcrumbs out the door, up the steps into your backyard uh, so that the skunk will follow them up out of the cellar. Uh, and leave. So the woman thanked him and hung up and then called back a couple hours later and told the sergeant, I did what you said. I put a trail of breadcrumbs up the steps and now I have two skunks uh, in my cellar. And I don't know if you ever feel like that or not. You want to get rid of one bad thing, but instead of one bad thing going away, another bad thing comes in. And it's like, you know, I'm not, I don't, part of the reason is that when we actually do begin to rid ourselves of the hell that needs to not be in our lives, We don't put back into our lives the positive characteristics, the qualities of Jesus that we need to have there living inside of us uh, that gives us all kinds of 
positive steps towards spiritual help. So back that anything goes that we did, um, do you remember at the end of the event, we're all sticky and nasty and oatmeal-y and flowery and, and eggy and everything. Do you remember what we, the first thing we did was we walked down to the lake and we hosed ourselves off. And once we got most of the nasty off, we sent the campers, right? Remember I told you that we sent a letter to the campers telling them, bring an extra set of clothes, one that you can throw away, that you're definitely going to want to trash. So we sent them back in, and they actually took a shower, a real shower, not just a hosed-off shower, a real shower. And when they got done with their shower, they went to their room, they got in their suitcase, and they put on a new pair of underwear and a new shirt and a new pair of shorts and some socks and maybe even a new pair of shoes. Can you imagine putting the, after taking, getting hosed off and then showering and getting most of that off you. Can you imagine putting on the clothes that you had had on before? How stupid would you have to be to put those back on? And I cannot tell, listen, as one who went through that multiple times, I can't tell you how good it feels to put on clean clothes. But if you take off the old stuff and don't replace it with the right things, you don't really accomplish anything, which is why Paul doesn't stop with what we need to get rid of. He talks about the things that grow Jesus' qualities inside of us. So check, check this out. Paul also talks about these. I grow the Jesus in me by putting on consideration, which means you honor others above yourself. The apostle Paul shows us some more practical ways for our everyday lives. In verse 12, look at what he says. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, and humility, and gentleness, and patience with people. So next, I want to make sure you get this, uh, in uh, forbearance and forgiveness. You need to put that on, forbearance and forgiveness. Verse 13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Paul says, you want to know how to do this practically? You have to let go of grievance. You don't hold grudges. You let go of grievances. You focus on God's forgiveness because that helped. Listen, this is, this is more for you than the other person, although it helps them to see Jesus in you. It helps you let go of the pain and the rage that comes from holding on to those things. The final article of clothing that you need to put on is love. In 1 Corinthians, he would say these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Verse 14, Paul writes, and over all these things, all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And I, I hope you can catch this. In America, this is very hard to hear. Love is not a feeling. We talk about it like it is, or it's like a hole that we fall into and out of, or some, I, we talk about love in some ridiculous, unbiblical way. True, unconditional love is a decision we make sometimes for those who don't deserve it. It's giving compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience to those who sit at the bottom of the totem pole. You know, one of the things uh, that has been said that's disturbing about the church, Lee Strobel uh, writes about it. Strobel, if you don't know who he is, he was an atheist who set out to disprove uh, Jesus to tear down the Christian faith in the process, ended up coming to believe in Jesus, gave his life to Christ, and now he is a pastor and an author. He said one of the most surprising things he discovered about Christianity, the, th the thing that surprised him as an atheist, the thing that surprised him most about Christians was how mean we are to each other. 
because our banner is love. And it surprised an atheist how mean we are to each other. Because love is the ultimate expression of the heart of Jesus. So your next step in your walk with Jesus, it is most likely that many of us, most of us have recognized the struggle that Paul mentioned that's still a struggle for us. If it helps you at all, everything Paul mentioned, at least one of those, most likely multiple, have been a struggle for all of us at one time or another. Some of them we've moved beyond. For others of us who are Jesus followers, we still struggle with them. All right? If that helps you at all, it is a struggle that we need to put down, that we work on letting go, killing in us. Or maybe you've seen a quality of Jesus that you recognize that you are thinking to yourself, this is missing from my life. I need to encourage this to grow in me. Or maybe you've been thinking to yourself this morning that following Jesus is something you need. You, I mean, you go to church. You just never made that commitment to him and said, I want you to not only be my savior, I need you to save me, but I want to follow you as well. And I'd love to help you with that. We're about to sing a song here in a moment. Uh, our worship team is going to lead us in these words. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. And so for some of us in the room, we're singing this song to remind us because we need reminded of who we are. And I, remember, I still remember the first time I heard this song. I was at the North American Christian Convention. It was the last week of June, and I'd never heard this song before. And they're singing it in the worship time, and I just froze as I'm listening to these words because in that moment, I needed to be reminded of that. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I needed to hear that. And I wonder if maybe someone here needs to hear it this morning. We remind ourselves of that, and it becomes true this morning of Adeline Sarant. And can be true for you too. If you want to give your life to Jesus. So during this song, after this song, I'm going to be right up here on the front row. And if you'd like to talk about how to make this happen, I'd love to talk to you about that. Why don't we stand together? We're going to sing this song.